You turn again in the Bible, this time to 1 John, chapter 3, verse 18. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 18. And that begins at page 1022 in the few Bibles. Page 1022. I'm going to read 1 John 3, beginning at verse 18, as far as chapter 4, verse 6. Just give your attention to the Word of God. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in them. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now if you go back to the beginning, the beginning of what we read, this is the only place in the letter that John talks about the heart. He mentions the heart in 3.17, where he receives his brother in need that closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? And then we saw a flurry of concern about the heart in verse 19 and 20.21. We reassure our heart. If our heart condemns us, our heart does not condemn us. And then he doesn't talk about the heart again for the rest of the letter. So this is the place, then, to talk about our heart. Do you have peace in your heart? Or is there a continual churning, a disquiet? If there's a disquiet, what kind of disquiet? Is it the disquiet of anger? Is it the disquiet of fear? Is it the disquiet of doubt and confusion? You know, as he talks about the heart, whether it condemns us or not, we see that in fact we ought to listen to our conscience and we ought to pay attention to our heart. Now what do I mean by these words? First of all, I didn't say conscious. You're conscious if you're awake and you know it. Right? I mean the conscience. The conscience is that internal sense you have that what you did was wrong or what you did was right. 
when you have that sense that, ah, oh, I shouldn't have punched my brother. Right? And it's your conscience telling you. Your conscience is saying, you were wrong when you punched your brother. And when the Bible says heart, and when I say heart, I'm going to follow the Bible's usage here, we're not quite in line, the Bible, the way I'm speaking, with American culture. American culture, by heart, tends to mean feelings, and then talk about head meaning thinking. But the Bible uses the word heart for all of that. Everything that's going on inside of you, that's heart. What you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're planning, your resentments, your memories, your regrets, all that stuff is your heart. And so the conscience, of course, is one piece of your heart. Conscience is one part of that thing of what's going on inside you. That's the moral evaluative piece of it. It was wrong to punch your brother. Heart is what you do with that, why you punched your brother, whether you're planning on doing it again, like all of that is, is heart. And the conscience is one piece of it. Now we often want to avoid dealing with our hearts. We often want to squelch the promptings of conscience. Perhaps because we think it'd be too embarrassing, too difficult, to I just don't want to apologize to my brother for sucker punching him. There's a number of things that may hold us back. This is back one reason why people get addicted to drugs and to alcohol. It's flooded with these bad feelings. Oh, I, I can't handle it. Let me drown it. It's a classic. You can, you know, lots of country songs about that. I'm here getting smashed because my girlfriend left me. Okay? Now, that, of course, is a terrible solution because it's not a solution. You wake up, now you have a headache, all the old problems, and you may have created some new ones. The trouble is the drug will then say, well, let's get high again. Keep kicking that can down, down on the road. There's no solution at all. We get a better way here. But before I just focus on substance abuse, I want to caution you that all of us right now are being conditioned, at least all of us with smartphones, are being conditioned to avoid our hearts and not listen to our conscience. Because the apps that are trying to capture your attention, they try to get to the point where they're your solution whenever you have a little mental distress. I'm a little bored, reach for the phone. I'm a little uneasy in heart, reach for the phone. I'm angry, reach for the phone. Any sort of mental problem, reach for the phone. Sometimes if you're on the phone and you don't know why, because you don't remember deciding to go to the phone, you might want to kind of go back in memory. What was I feeling a split second before the phone was magically in my hand? Because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be what you use to scratch your itch. Any kind of itch. The app designer wants to be make his app what you go to. To drown that feeling. Now think about what that means. God puts the conscience in you to wake you up so that you will reconcile with him and with your friends. But if instead of listening to that, you constantly drown it by reaching for the app or whatever you reach for what will that mean for your relationship with God? You're not repenting, you're avoiding. You're not reconciling, you're avoiding. You're staying in your sins, you're leaving your relationships in a bad place. You've got to resist that. Just think about how so many people want to always have the music playing. The music is awesome. But if you always need the music playing, why? Some silence is good for us. As in be still and know that I am God. But we try to never be still. 
So be careful for that. That can be fatal for your spiritual life. When your conscience tells you that you did wrong, that's usually God telling you to repent. You need to listen to that, not drown that. You need to respond to that. Listen to your conscience and be aware of your heart. Now, I'm not telling you to constantly be aware of your heart because mostly we need to get out of ourselves and go love somebody else. But from time to time, it is good to know what's going on with you. Are you angry? Are you frantic? Are you despairing? It's good to know. You can't solve it if you don't take stock of what's going on and then try to address it. So John here talks about a heart that needs to be reassured. A heart that condemns us. A heart that does not condemn us. He's saying, of course, you are to be in touch with what's going on with your heart. And what are you supposed to do about it? Well, he gives us two things to do about it. One comes from the beginning of the book, and then one comes right here. At the beginning of the book, he said, look, God is light. In God, there is no darkness at all. And if you're walking in darkness, you're not walking with the Lord. If you say you have those sins, who's the liar here? You are God. But if you come to God with confession, if you come out of the darkness to the light to confess your sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And you say, yeah, well, not my sins. Well, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the whole world. He is enough to forgive your sins and your buddy's sins and the other buddy's sins. This is how to deal with that guilt. It's to come out of the darkness and confess your sins to God and to throw yourself on God's mercy in Christ knowing that Jesus is your advocate, the one who argues your case with the Father. When you look inside and you see some of this disquiet is my own sin, this is what you do. You don't dull it, you take it to Christ. And you ask for his forgiveness. Now, when you confess your sins from the heart, and you set your face to walk in a different way, turning to God, then your conscience has a job to do. The conscience is sometimes called the voice of God in your soul. But sometimes the conscience does not actually say what God says. Sometimes you want to say, ah, but I think I will keep condemning myself because I can't believe I did that. It's actually the sound of pride when you say, I can't believe I did that. I want to maintain a higher vision of myself than such a sinner who would do what I did. What you're called to do there, your conscience is called to echo God. If God has forgiven you, then your conscience is to say, God has forgiven us. We can be at peace. There is peace with God. It is not for me to condemn if God has acquitted. Your reason, in other words, sometimes has to reason with your conscience. That's one thing to do. And the other thing to do, when there's that churning inside, is what we see here. When we love in deed and in truth, by this we know we're of the truth, and that reassures our hearts before him. When we have that genuine love for our brothers, that reassures our hearts that we are really God's children now. The Holy Spirit must be at work in us if we see genuine love inside. Because when we love in deed, you have two shirts. Yeah, we have more than two shirts. You have 20 shirts. You see your brother without a shirt? Well, they give him a shirt. 
You went to school and your mommy made you two sandwiches? And some other kids forgot his lunch and has no sandwiches? Well, then give him a sandwich. He'll be a little hungry, but that's better than him being very hungry. You have a bed in your house? Someone says, can you put somebody up for a night? You don't say, well, they see how much. No, no, no. Do you have a bed? Yes? Well, then you provide the bed with a knife. When you concretely love your neighbor with these concrete, genuine acts, you see that. That reassures your heart, except that not that alone. There are some people who give concrete acts of help, but are not at peace with God. They're just doing it to be thought well of. So he says, let us love indeed, we talked about that, and in truth. How do you know if you're loving in truth? Well, are you doing the things so that you'll get some recognition? Well, it's good you did them, but of course your motivation was the recognition. Are you giving some help so that they'll help you again later on? Well, it's good to help. And it probably would be good for them if they did, if they can reciprocate. They probably should. But if, if you help someone and then you're enraged or discouraged because they don't respond well, well, then you just simply do it for yourself. But if you're able to help, and they don't help back, and that's not a good sign for them, but you're able to still be glad that you were able to help, well, then you know that you helped from a good conscience. You helped from genuine love, and you can have to be at peace that God's Spirit is on work in you. If you were able to help, and able to walk away, and not say, it wasn't worth it because she didn't say thank you. Augustine says, the pinnacle of love is when we lay down our life for our friends. We're not mostly that far along. So he gives us this way station. If we can lay down our stuff for our friends, then we know that God's love is at work in us. And that reassures our hearts. Now, I want to talk for a second. Suppose you kind of know that you ought to help somebody, but you also know that you won't do it from a pure heart so maybe you shouldn't do it at all because it's not of your heart. Is that how you should reason? No. No. Because if the person needs help, you ought to give it and not make it into a referendum on yourself. Love for your brother is give him the help he needs. If you really know yourself well, you'll probably start to realize that you do things through a variety of motives and it's extremely rare and difficult to actually get to a totally pure motive. And rather than just being paralyzed and withholding your help all the time, you ought to do the help. Do it with a mixed heart, if you can't do it with a pure one. And God also blesses us in this way. Sometimes when we do the right thing, and we extend ourselves to somebody, sometimes our heart then follows along. When we get over the resentment, we get away from that feeling of, I didn't want to. Let's do the right thing. Often God helps us then, by, follow, by moving our emotions along in our brother's direction. Now he says here, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. What does he mean? Well, it means this. If our, your heart condemns you rightly, then you better deal with that before God, because God knows all of that and a good deal more. Indeed. You can fool man, but you can't fool God. If your heart condemns you, and if your heart's right, repent of your sins. Don't try to hide, lie, or deny it God. But, if your heart condemns you, but your heart is wrong. If your heart condemns you, but you have an exaggerated or warped sense of your own responsibility. Well, then don't worry. 
God doesn't have to follow your heart. God is greater than your heart. God is the independent judge who will get it right. And so we don't have to necessarily say, I'm condemning myself, therefore I am condemned. Hang on. I'm condemning myself. Let me examine my conduct according to God's word. And then let me see if I should condemn myself. If I should condemn myself, okay, fine. Then I will repent. If I need not condemn myself, then I can be at peace. And not worry that God and my conscience are the same thing. They're not the same thing. And you see here a crucial reason for you to get to know the Bible better. And that is that your conscience, which is supposed to be the voice of God in your soul, your conscience can get things wrong. One thinks of the American Southerners who held slaves who called themselves good Christians. Now, what are you doing? Well, their conscience was seared on that point. They could not see, they did not see the evil, some of them, on that point. They needed to read the Word of God and inform their conscience better to see what God's Word actually says about things. Our culture can warp our conscience. Our family can warp our conscience. If you sin too much in the same way, that can warp your conscience. I used to feel bad when I did this, but I don't feel bad anymore. That's a bad thing. That means now you're sinning with a seared conscience. No longer is God's voice clear to you. That's a dangerous place to be when you're no longer repenting. But if your heart does not condemn you, and your heart is right, and you have confidence before God, and what a blessing that is. You should strive to be like the Apostle Paul and be able to say, I have always tried to live with a clear conscience before God. Now you notice, Paul was doing very much the wrong thing for a while. He needed to be enlightened by God as to what was the right thing. But he at least knew that he was to live before God with a clear conscience. And he strove to do that. And the path to that is not avoidance. Rather, as we saw some weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly grief which you need to have when you have that disquieted heart. And you look at yourself, if you see sin, then you want to have the godly grief that produces a repentance leading to salvation without regret. Don't be afraid to have that godly grief. The godly grief that produces a repentance leads to salvation without regret. Now, we need to address a difficulty here. Verse 21 and 22. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Sounds good, we got that. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Now, what gets troublesome here is whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because particularly that's troublesome if you isolate the phrase and pull it out of everything else which we should not do. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And we think, there have been times in my life where I was really earnestly praying and not receiving what I asked. Is it because I was not keeping his commandments? Well, at times probably in your life you might be able to identify that. Okay, I was not qualified. But there's probably other times in life where you like, as far as I know I was pleasing to God, as far as I know I was keeping his commandments, and I was definitely asking and not receiving. Where is the problem? In fact, if we run too far in the wrong way with this little phrase, we could end up condemning others. Did your mother die? Well, either you didn't pray hard enough or you prayed, but you must not have been pleasing to God because you clearly didn't get what you asked for. That would lead to some hard-heartedness towards those who mourn. That can't be right. We're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. 
So I was formulating what I was going to say about this, and then I read Augustine's sermon, and the next five minutes is all Augustine. Right? My wording, his thoughts. This is my footnote. How does Augustine deal with this? We have all the sermons on First John. First thing he says is, boy, this is hard. He goes on for a while. This is hard. You know, you thought that one was hard, but this one's harder. He goes on and says, this is a hard one. He says, let's think about some biblical examples that don't seem to fit. How about the Apostle Paul? Here's a man who, as we've already quoted, says, I've always tried to live with a clear conscience before God. He says to the churches, my heart is wide open to you. Reciprocate. He says, I am willingly poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith. And he expresses his love for the churches. Clearly, he's full of love and God's charity. But when he has some problem in his body, some pain or illness, and he pleaded with God three times to remove it, God did not remove it. Now, how do we understand that? Augustine says, hang on, before you think about that too much, let's think of the opposite kind of person. Someone in whom there is no good, no charity, doesn't keep God's commandments, doesn't please God, where you know that he doesn't please God. Do you have trouble thinking of such a person? That's easy. Think of the devil. Does the devil ever ask God for something and get it? Yes. They're talking about Job. And the devil wants to torment Job and take away Job's blessings and attack Job and make him miserable. God says, okay. Or think of a man who had the legion of demons. And the demons cry out. And they say, Jesus, send us into the pigs. That's our wish. We want the pigs. Jesus says, fine, have the pigs. So we seem to have these counterexamples of places where someone who pleases God does not get his wish, and those who definitely don't please God do get their wish. Now, how are we to understand that in connection with this verse here? Well, think a little harder about what God said to Paul. When Paul pleaded with God three times to remove the thorn in his flesh, what did God say to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul was obviously heard in his prayer. God was talking to him about it. We'd like to know how. But God responded. Paul knew what God was saying to him in answer to his prayer. God heard his prayer as he's talking to him about it. And God is saying, my plan is better for your salvation. It is better for you that you have this thorn. It is better for you to experience your own bodily weakness so that you would rely on my power. It is better for your salvation, my way, than doing it your way. And so Augustine says, if you can imagine a doctor talking to a patient, the patient says, Doc, I'm really hurting. I want you to treat me this way. And if you can imagine a doctor saying, No, I know this situation. I'm going to treat it that way. If you can imagine a doctor saying that and being correct, then you can see why God would might hear your request and for your salvation not give you what you're asking for. But he's hearing you. He's hearing you for your salvation. He's not hearing you, you might say, in regards to your wish. So those who please God are always heard for their salvation. They may or may not be heard in regards to their wish. Whereas the devil and those who are determined not to please God, they are never heard for salvation. Although, interestingly, they may be heard for their wish. So then, 
We have a solution here. Then we must go on to another question. What is the most important thing about Christianity? If you're going to sum it up and say, here is the core. With this you're a Christian, without it you're not. What would that core be? Would it be a belief? Would it be an action? Would it be something you do, something you think, something you say? What would the core thing be? The thing that makes you a Christian. Well, look at verse 23. This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. At the core, he gives you two. He gives you something to believe about Jesus. And something to do to love one another. He gives you both a key theological point and a key life ethical point. Both what you believe and what you do. Both what you think and how you act. Both your justification and your sanctification. Both the inside and the outside. We're going to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. We're going to know who He is and what He's done. Not, not to deny that he is both God and man. That he came and that he died. That he rose again. That he is propitiation for our sins. We're to know and believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and we're to love one another. And I want to speak to any who may listen online and, and not appear. Now, a lot of people aren't appearing today because of illness. But if you never appear, because you prefer to sit at home, you prefer to watch church on a TV or on a computer, you prefer to say, I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how then are you loving one another if you never show up to meet the one another? The core of Christianity is not to sit at home and believe certain things. It's to follow through, believe and act by loving one another, which is hard to do if you won't meet the one another. We're called into the church. As though in the family, we're called into the ark. He uses these two things, and he says, Whoever does this, believes in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and loves one another, abides in God, and God abides in them. And we know this by the Spirit that He has given us. He means the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? Well, at the first, they spoke in tongues, a sign that the gospel was to be proclaimed in every tongue to every tongue. And how now do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? I had my heart upset for some time in college. My Christian friends, I mean, kind of speak in tongues. That's not what the Bible says. Well, if we have that genuine love for the brothers in our hearts, it's a sign to us that we are different now. That the Spirit abides in us. But that means we go on to another danger. As he mentions the Spirit he's given us at the end of chapter 3, and as we begin chapter 4, you see that he has to address a problem. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the Spirit. And that's a little difficult to understand, because you've met people, and you've met teachings, but you may not be aware of having met a Spirit. So how do you test the Spirit? that you don't know if you've met them. Well, you know, you meet people and they talk to you. They start to talk to you about, well, I think this. 
And you should believe that. And if the person presents himself as a prophet, well, you can test what he says. Because there's something behind what he says. It may be the Holy Spirit, in which case you should listen. Or it may be a lying spirit. You might think of King Ahab. King Ahab, at one point, made an alliance with King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat feared the Lord. Ahab did not. Ahab said, let's go to war. Jehoshaphat said, let's ask the Lord. Ahab said, let's, fine. I got prophets on call. Calls in 400 of them. And they're all saying the same thing. It's going to be a great war. It's going to go well. Jehoshaphat looked at the prophets and said, mm, I'm in a prophet of the Lord. So I had said, well, I got one of those, but he always says bad stuff about me. Joshua said, oh, call him in anyway. The man comes in. And the man says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And the Lord said, who will deceive Ahab into going up to die at that place? And one spirit came forward and said, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. What do you think happened to the man who said that? Well, one of those other prophets came up and punched him. And then the king put him in jail on bread and water. But as they took him out to jail, he said, if the king returns, God has not spoken by me. The king returned and died. The king returned on his way out. The king returned because the arrows had pierced him, shot at random, and hit the king. You know, if he meets the same teaching several times, there's an expression we use. And everybody seems to be thinking, you know, a bunch of people are thinking something, we say it's the spirit of the age. And we're encouraged here to consider that perhaps there's an actual spirit behind the spirit of the age. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, when you were led astray to worship idols, something was leading you astray. There was some spirit at work to make you think that worshiping an idol was a good idea. We should consider that that doesn't require an actual idol to be true. So we're called here to Christian discernment. We're not to believe everything. We're not to believe nothing. We're to have our guard up and be thinking, should I believe this when I meet a new teacher? And what you need to hear is what he tells you. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then he says somewhat more generally, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The Holy Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. If you hear somebody who says, I'm speaking for the Holy Spirit, and you're listening, and you're not hearing about Jesus, you have a problem. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If you've got Spirit, 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 and no Jesus, that's not the Holy Spirit. Now, Augustine knows the problem. Because Augustine, he may seem like a long time ago, but he's still commenting on the Bible. The Bible's older than him. And he said, you know, the heretics that we deal with now, in 400 AD, they passed that test. They say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The trouble is the devil knows scripture. So the devil will send fresh false teachings that try to get around little Tests, the quick test are to put down in Scripture. This is why we need the ancient church and we need its creeds. 
where they dealt with each new, fresh lie from the devil. And they got it clear and straight what must be said about Jesus Christ, that he has come in the flesh, that he's both God and man, that the two natures are kept distinct, but in one person. You need all of the creedal formulations. We also should check the lies. The lies of those who say, I have a new teaching. All right, what kind of life do you live? Kind of remarkable how many cult leaders go flying off into a lust for power, lust for money, lust for sex. And sometimes you can look at it and be like, you know, you could have kept your con going longer if you'd like held back on some of that stuff. What were you doing? But of course, without the Holy Spirit in them, the money and the power and the sex is the whole point of it. Why would they hold back on that? That's what they're actually going for. Look at their lives as well as what they say about Jesus Christ. Now we see here, he goes on to say, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. I spoke about Antichrist a couple weeks ago. You can find it in the sermon on 2.18 to 2.27. I'm not going to repeat that here. I'm just going to say, should reading about the spirit of the Antichrist so unsettle you that you lose your peace of conscience? The answer is no. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The apostles saw a lot of demon-possessed people. Did they keep them up at night? Doesn't seem like it. Because they knew that the one who was with them, Jesus Christ, was greater than all of those demons. In fact, Jesus was so much greater that he empowered them to cast out the demons in his name. And so they knew the one who was with them was greater than the one who was in the world. So be courageous and test the spirits. If the spirits are not where they need to be, then get out of it. And don't spend time. Don't introduce other people to them. Don't say, oh, you should really meet this guy. He's a lot of fun. But not if it's a false teacher. Don't send sheep to the slaughter. Stay away from those who are false teachers. To wrap this up, beloved, listen to your conscience. Pay attention to your heart. And then you can abide in Christ and have assurance. Listen to your conscience. You can repent of your sin. Rely on your advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Love your brothers. As if you are assured that you're really a God when you love in deed and in truth. Repentance and love and the Holy Spirit. These quiet our hearts. These give us assurance. These give us that wonderful confidence before God. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply your word in the night. Help us to apply your word in our moments of upset and distress, in our moments of pressure among others, moments of pressure alone. Help us, Lord, to walk before you, to repent of our sins, to walk by your Spirit. Help us, Lord, also to love from the heart. And we thank you that you make peace of conscience possible. That you call us to it. We thank you that you call us to trust in Jesus Christ. To know that we are your children now. And to call out to you when I need you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.